you'll take your Bible, please, and turn to Psalm 119. We're working our way toward the end of this wonderful section of God's Word. I don't know what I mentioned a minute ago. I don't know what you think about when you think about the word servant or when you think about a servant. Maybe your perception there is directed by Downton Abbey. Okay? So the bell rings downstairs and things are put into motion as the servants do what it is that they're called to do. Or maybe you think about the movie that that came out a few years ago called The Butler. About the man who served, what was that, almost... Almost 40 years in the White House. Started out washing dishes and ended up um, as, as the leader, if you will, in the White House of those who served. Maybe you think about that. Maybe you think about something that used to happen back in the old days when you'd go into a restaurant and wait and they'd call your name that your table was ready and, and a server would come and take care of you back in some ancient historical place back there where they used to do that. Maybe maybe that's where your mind goes when you think of a servant. The scriptures would have us think about a servant and the concept of servanthood very differently from what the world would want us to think about. God said to his people early in their that relationship after he had called this this people who was not a people, he called them to himself, and he said, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. He says in Isaiah 41, I took you from the farthest ends of the earth and called you from the farthest corners, saying, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, it says in Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. God said to his people, you are my servant. He also said to his son, the father said to his son, you are my servant. You are my chosen servant. He says in Isaiah 42, behold, my servant whom I'm uphold, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. It says later on in Isaiah 52, my, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, as we just read in the book of Philippians. So God called his people to be a servant. He called his son to be the servant, capital S. And the son calls his disciples. He calls us to be his servant. John 12, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He later on says in John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater, he says, greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then Jesus kind of changes that servant relationship in the next verse. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide in whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. In this section of um, Psalm 119, where we are today, the word servant is used four times in two stanzas. And I'm going to combine these two stanzas today. We're going to look at two, two of these stanzas together because I think the idea of servant and that of who we are as God's servant ties these two sections together. 
And, and it, the, the word occurs four times in this section. It's like 14 or so in all of Psalm 119. It's a major point of emphasis by the psalmist. But let's look at today's passage, okay? Psalm 119, and I'm going to start reading in, in verse 121. This is the Ayan section of Psalm 119. The next one is Pei. We sell it, spell it P-E. Kind of think about it as I read this way. The, the, the letter Ayan in the Hebrew language represents the eye or perception. And the next section, Pei, represents the mouth. Or proclamation, if you will, or declaring something. But, and so the Hebrews would say, before you can say something, you need to see it. Before you can proclaim something, you need to understand it and have a proper perception of it. So just kind of keep that in mind as, as we read this, starting in verse 121. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of, of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. And then in the next stanza, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as, in your way, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask your your blessing over this word that was just read Lord, it's ancient, but it's alive. Lord, it's, it's, it's got a lot of time on it, but it's timeless. It's as relevant to us today as it was when your Holy Spirit inspired the writer and those who read it and heard it first, Lord. It's, it's, it's for us too. Lord, teach us today about a servant. Teach us what it means to have a servant's mind, a servant's perspective, a servant's heart, a servant's prayer life, a servant's obedience. God, show us those things. Lord, turn our eyes to Jesus today because he is the servant. He is the one who, Lord, laid down his life for us, coming not to be served, but to serve. So, Lord, show us Jesus today through this word. And we pray that in his name. Amen. So, what does it mean to be a servant? And let's just kind of work our way through these, okay? I am your servant. And I want us to think about that in light of a a topic that's really hot today. It's one that's on everybody's lips, everybody's signs. seems like it's everywhere. And that's the idea of justice, okay? I am your servant. I stand for what is right, and I trust you as I do. I think that's kind of what this first section here 
in verse 121 says, Lord, I have done as best as I can what is right. I'm seeking to live out your word. Lord, I'm making the right decisions. We'll see, I think it's what this means. I'm making the right decisions for the right reasons. And Lord, as I do that, I'm going to be opposed and I'm going to stand in your steadfast love, God, and trust you to take care of me as I do this. I think that's kind of what he's saying in these first verses. I've done justice and I've done what is righteous or just and right. Those two words go together quite often in Psalm 119, really throughout the scriptures. And later on, we're going to we're going to focus in one stanza on righteousness. And what that is, and we'll see that in a couple of weeks, but here he's saying, I've done justice and I've done righteousness. The message translation, that's a paraphrase, but it says, I stood up for justice and for what is right. So that's what the psalmist is saying here. That, that's what I've done, Lord, as best as I can. I've stood up against that. So the idea of, of doing something just is an action. Okay, this is, this is an action. This is doing the right thing at the right time. And then he says, I've done what is right or what is righteous. So that refers to the reasoning behind it. So just says I'm going to do the right thing and right says I'm doing it for the right reason. Okay. so one is the action and one is the principle underlying that action. And that's what he says As God's word is my guide. I'm going to do, Lord, I'm going to stand up for the things that you love and for the things that you value. I read a book while I was on vacation. It's been published. I think Tim Keller wrote the book back in maybe almost 10 years ago. Generous Justice. I commend it to you highly. It's an excellent book. So when we think about justice, we need to be careful, as we do with a whole lot of terms that are in the, in the culture today, we need to be careful that we don't let culture define what Scripture's made clear. We're, we're prone to that sometimes as the church. We're, we're prone to jump on the cultural bandwagon and allow definitions to be captivated by, by the culture and not by the word. Keller says this in his book, If a person has grasped the meaning of God's grace in his heart, he will do justice. Justice follows justification. For when the Spirit enables us to understand what Christ has done for us, the result is a life poured out in deeds of justice and compassion for others. The Christian response to grace offered in the cross of Jesus Christ is one of justice, both in thought and deed. So he goes back to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Remember where Paul said in that passage of Scripture, "Him He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So in Christ... God has re responded to us justly, but he put that justice on Jesus. And we receive grace and mercy. And, and Keller says that ought to be what marks a Christian. That's what justice would be. Us responding to people around us, to the poor and the needy, to the hurting, to the immigrant. We would respond to them the same way Christ has responded to us. So we let God's word define things, not political platforms, not parties, not Fox News, not CNN. We let God's word define these things for us. And so he says, Lord, I'm going to I'm going to do what is just and right. And I'm going to trust you to care for me as I do it. 
While I stand for what is right and I seek the right thing at the right time for the right reasons, notice what he says. Give your servant a pledge of good. What he means there is, Lord, I'm going to trust you to take care of me, to do good to me as I'm seeking to do this. He says next, Lord, I'm going to trust in the fulfillment of your righteous promise. And, Lord, I'm going to hold on to your promises as I do this. Everything's going to oppose me as I do this. Lord, I'm holding on to your goodness on my behalf and your promises that you've made to me. And it says, then deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. I'm going to trust you to care for me. I'm going to trust you to do the good things for me that I need while I do this. And I'm going to rest and trust God in your steadfast covenant love for me as I do that. Lord, I'm going to stand for what is right. And I'm going to do what is good as best as I can. And I'm going to trust you, Lord, as I do it. Justice. Don't let culture define it, church. Let's define it and live it out. Notice what he says next. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act. For your law has been broken. (laughs) Wow. If you put those two verses together, I posted this earlier. I think these two stanzas of Psalm 119 are, are going to go far in teaching us how to pray. Especially how to pray in today's climate in today's culture you put those verses together lord i am your servant give me understanding so that i may know what you have said your testimonies and and lord i need you to i need you to work here i need you to act so listen to how the servant is praying there lord deal with me according to your love and mercy i i don't want your justice god i want your mercy and grace i thank you that jesus took that justice Lord, I, I need that love and mercy, Lord, and I'm asking in humility. I'm dependent upon you, Lord. I need your instruction and your understanding so I can know what's going on around me, so I can know you and love you the way I should. That's kind of what he's praying there. And in verse 26, it's time for the Lord to act. Who are we to tell God what time it is? I thought about that this week as I read that. Who, who am I to say, Lord, it is time for you to get off your throne and do something. And it, and it seems to be, who are we to enlighten God and let him know what's going on down here in this crazy place? What, what is he saying here? What, what's going on here as he, as he cries out this? He's crying out what God's people have been crying out from, from the get-go, I think. Lord, when are, you, when are you going to do something? I'm tired. We're hurting. This place is broken. God, come fix it. Right? I mean, if you haven't cried that out, oh, God, work in our hearts. It's what they, listen, this is what we read in Revelation at the end. They stood before the throne, they cried out in a loud voice in Revelation 6.10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These are the martyrs crying out. How long will you wait, Lord, before you avenge our blood shed on your behalf? You know what his answer is? Wait. Dang. (laughs) Wait a little longer, he says. The apostles came to Jesus before he ascended back up into heaven in Acts 1. They came together and asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And what was his answer? 
It is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And in the meantime, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Wait. But waiting here is not just inactivity. He's, he, and, the, and I believe this passage tells us what we do while we wait. I was reading earlier this week, a, found online this devotion that was written in, in, excuse me, in 1685 by William Jenkins. The title of his little daily devotion was called The Morning Exercises. Everything betters a saint is what he wrote. I thought about this in relation to waiting. God, how long? Here's what he wrote. Not only ordinances, the word, the sacraments, holy society, the church, and even sinners and their very sinning better the saints. A saint sails in every wind. As the wicked are hurt by the best things, so the godly are bettered by the worst. Because your law has been broken, therefore I love your commandments, the psalmist says. Holiness is more owned by the godly. The more the world despises it. Zeal for God, he says, grows hotter by opposition. So I'm waiting, Lord. How long? And, and while I wait, Lord, while I wait... I'm waiting in your word. I'm holding on to your word. Verse 127 says, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. So while I wait, Lord, and this is where, listen, church, this is where understanding. Okay, we've talked about this in Psalm 119. Knowledge leads to understanding. So here's where understanding starts kicking in for the, for the saint. Here's where, here's where we start applying this understanding that we've been praying for and leaning on God's word for. He says, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Here's what I value determines what I trust. What I value. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. The psalmist is saying, I value your word above everything. And I trust your word above everything. And what I trust then determines what I love and what I hate. So it's all tied together here. What I value there determines what I trust. And what I trust determines what I love and what I hate. And and so here's, here's the point. I hate every false way. And we already heard him say in this passage and in the passage before this, I love your commandments. I love your word. So our attention as followers of Christ, okay, as servants of God, our attention is on him, not on anything and everything else. And because our attention is on him, so too is our affection. We're we're loving him and his word and his ways. So what the world, if I put it in the opposite way, what the world hates, which is God's word and God's ways, the very idea that there could be some standard of truth and right or wrong, that's, that's permanent, that's not determinative by me, the world hates that. And the servant of God loves it and treasures it and holds to it. And no place is this more evident than in the hot topics of our culture today. 
Right? Specifically, think about it. Sexuality. Sexual morality. No place is that more clear that, that the world hates God's word and his ways and we are called to love it and hold on to it in the storm that comes because we do. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a wonderful little book, Confronting Christianity. Oh, again, it's a super book. I commend it to you highly. She, she wrote an article that was posted on Gospel Coalition, and I actually reposted it this week. And, and she addresses what is, I think, so prevalent in our culture today. And, and this is it. We have allowed the culture to hijack the idea of... Um, the idea of, of what it means to have, have rights and privileges, equal rights. And, and this is evident in, this is evident in the idea, I've got to be careful here, but the black life, you know, black lives matter. That, that idea that those lives matter, the, the lives of black friends and neighbors and Citizens matter. That's absolutely true. But that name, that that phrase, Black Lives Matter, if you understand the organization and you understand then that that all of the the organizations under the rainbow flag have been brought in under that same umbrella. And in my mind, I believe that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And the reason it's a tragedy is because. The idea of treating people of color equally because of the way that God made them. And then equating that to choices and decisions that are made, I think is that's a tragedy. McLaughlin addresses this. She says the idea of racism and prejudice. Here's what she says. To be sure, the history of racism in America should be a cautionary tale to Christians today. Not to try to cloak their sinful prejudices in biblical garments. I'm reading a book with a group of pastors in our community right now, and it, it addresses this idea of the history of racism. Uh, read it, it'll break your heart to see how professing Christians, pastors, internationally known evangelists, Defended slavery with Scripture. She says, to be sure, the history of racism in America should be a cautionary tale to Christians today, not to try to cloak their sinful prejudices in biblical arguments. We must search the Scriptures and examine our own hearts. Hearts, she says, by the way, that the Bible tells us will be prone to self-righteousness and resistant to loving those who are different from us. But the past failure of Christians to listen to the Bible when it cuts against their culture doesn't license Christians today to do the same. Segregationists were racist, not because they were following the Bible, but because they weren't. Indeed, their racist views depended on ignoring clear teaching of the New Testament, which insists on love and brotherhood across racial and cultural differences. Now listen to what she says next. Christian sexual ethics were as shocking to the original first century Greco-Roman context as they are today. If Christians are to learn from history, the lesson must be this. Hold fast to Scripture's radical demands, whether the cultural tide is coming in or out. 
You don't know which side of history you're on until the last day. She's addressing the the idea that we are told today as Bible-believing people that we're on the wrong side of history. As culture moves more and more in a direction that's opposite God's morals and God's word. And she says, hold fast, regardless of what the tide is doing. I am your servant, Lord. I love your truth. I'm going to stand for it. And I'm going to hate what is false. We move into the next section. And he says, I am your servant. I live by your light and I trust in your grace. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Let's think about that for just a second. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The idea there for wonderful literally means out of this world. Or supernatural is what some say. God's word is supernatural. Now, later on, it'll be probably two weeks, maybe I think two more weeks before we get to to the next stanza that has verse 160 in it. Psalm 119 verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. We're going to talk about the nature of Scripture The nature of this book that God has given us. We're going to talk about that when we get to this verse. It is supernatural. It is absolutely true. And it will endure forever. It's out of this world, the psalmist says. They are wonderful. They are supernatural. It is not a human book, okay? It is not a human book. And it is not understood with human wisdom or teaching. It's supernaturally taught. By the Holy Spirit. And that's the idea behind the idea of unfolding. Scripture is clear enough that a child can understand it. Amen? It is, it is amazing that children can, can hear the Word and, and read the Word and have the Word taught to them and understand the basic message of it. But it is deep. It is as deep as God is high above us. And it is unfolded. The idea is it just comes in steps, if you will. God enlightens us and opens that window for us, unfolds that word to those who are what? What does it say? Your word gives light. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So the writer is telling us that This light, this understanding, this insight, this supernatural, wonderful, out-of-this-world truth comes to those who are simple, teachable, humble. Wow. What a beautiful thought that is to us. It unfolds to those who are humble and teachable. It unfolds to those who are diligent, okay, longing for it. Look what it says in verse 131. I open my mouth and I pant. My mind goes back to as the deer pants for water brooks. So my soul longs for you, the psalmist said. I pant. I open my mouth and I'm, I'm longing for your commandments, he says. I've got to have it. 
That light comes to those who are diligent. That light comes to those who are trusting. Look at what it says in verse 133. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. Lord, I am holding on. I am trusting in your promise. Lord, keep my steps steady. Keep me walking in the direction I need to go. Lord, I'm counting on you. I'm trusting in you one step at a time. Help me, Lord, not to be sucked in, to buy into or captivated by the iniquity of those who are trying to have dominion over me. This picture of us constantly walking through this world and the culture that we're in. And our sin and the world and our enemy Satan wants to draw us in. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, keep my steps on that narrow path I need to be on so that nothing will get that dominion over me. No iniquity will get that dominion over me. Lord, I'm trusting you to do that. And in verse 136, Lord, I'm going to be obedient to your word. Lord, redeem me, he says in verse 34, from man's oppression. So, Lord, buy me out, if you will. Get me out of this oppression that I may keep your precepts. Lord, make your face shine upon your servant. I'll touch on that in just a minute and teach me. And, and Lord, I'm going to be obedient to that. Lord, my heart's going to break when I see people breaking your law and not walking in your ways. And, Lord, I'm going to do all I can to walk and be obedient in that. That's the idea of this light unfolding before us. So the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and pours it into our hearts. But we work too. We study. We read. We pray. We get that, right? You know, I, I begged my statistics teacher to let me pass when I was a senior in college at Appalachian. I begged her. I was going to get married the next week. Mrs. Gaynor, I begged her to pass me in that class. And I was failing. I was sinking like a ship. It was bad news. Mrs. Gaynor, if I don't pass this class, I can't get married. I can't get married. I can't. Life will stop. She went to church with me, which was helpful, but... um, and, and I, got a, I got a D, praise God. <laughs> I was never so thankful for a D. Never so thankful that, that she'd pour that D out on me. Um, and why was I even telling that story? Why was I, I did that a couple of weeks ago. So just as, as she was just, Lord, I, I need this. I, I need you to, oh, I know what it was. I thought maybe if I sleep on my statistics book, I can do this. I had not been diligent that semester. I had, not, I had not been trusting those algorithms that she was trying to teach me. I had clearly not been teachable. I thought I was humble, but I must not have been. But I still needed a break, and I got it. The Word doesn't work that way completely, okay? The Spirit does teach us. Jesus promised that. But He does it to those who are teachable, diligent, trusting, obedient, And here's where I want to kind of wrap it up with this section. I'm scooting through it quickly, but I think you can summarize this pretty quick. So what does this light do for us? What does this understanding do for us? Well, what we see happening in the rest of this passage is it will change the way we pray. It will change the way we pray. Why do we pray what we pray? Why? Why? What's our motive And here the psalmist is motivated by a desire of a servant. Here's how a servant prays. Verse 132, turn to me and be gracious to me. What's his basis for that? 
Because that's the way you treat people who love you, Lord. That's the way you, you, that's your way with those who love your name. So, Lord, be gracious to me. Lord, turn to me and be gracious to me. Lord, I make this request because you are a gracious God. I love you and I'm serving you. Lord, I'm trying this as well as I can to do this. And, Lord, I know you love me because that's who you are. And I know you're gracious to me, God, because that's who you are. I value your name and your honor and your reputation, Lord. Be gracious to me. Secondly, notice what he says in verse 133. Lord, protect me from sin. Keep my steps steady, he says first. And second, don't let sin dominate me. Sin will try to gain control of me, Lord. And sometimes it doesn't have to try. I let it. I just give it permission. Lord, protect me from sin that I may glorify your name. Lord, protect me. Look at the next one that he says there in verse 134. Redeem me, he says, from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Being God's servant, standing for biblical truth in our culture and in our day, will not be easy. We will face oppression, persecution, attacks of different kinds. And the psalmist here is asking for the Lord's deliverance. Redeem me, Lord. Set me free from those who would take me down. And in the process, Lord, I want to honor your name. So, Lord, keep me free in Christ so I can keep your precepts. Lord, deliver me from my enemies. And then I love what he says in verse 135. Make your face shine upon your servant. Teach me your statutes. It should remind us of number six, that that ironic blessing, the, the blessing of Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the way I memorized it, the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. That, that blessing is what the servant is praying here. Lord, make your face shine upon me. And, and there's a connection here. Lord, the unfolding of your word gives light. And you looking toward me, Lord, gives light. So when I'm in the word, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm face to face with you. I'm hearing from you. I'm, I'm learning from you. Think about the implications of that, church. Moses was told no one sees the face of God and lives. He was hidden in the cleft of the rock. And even then he glowed with the glory of God that his face had to be veiled, right? And Paul says in 2 Corinthians that when someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And we see the glory of God. That's what Jesus said. Whoever sees me has seen the Father. So Lord, make your face shine upon us, Lord And as you look to us, Lord, we are learning, verse 135, teach me your statutes. Lord, you're my master, I'm your servant, and you are my teacher. Lord, instruct me in your word. And those things just come together in a beautiful way there. And what is that instruction? And what is that walk with Jesus? And what is that face shining upon us? What does that look like in our culture today? Well, in one way, I think we see that in verse 136. We live in a broken world, and unfortunately brokenness is something that's missing in many of the lives of God's people. And I don't just mean brokenness over our own sin, that's lacking too in my life. I mean brokenness over the brokenness of others. And the psalmist said, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. 
We get mad. We, we can get arrogant. We can be judgmental. We can be critical. We can be tribal. But where are the tears, church? Where are the tears over our lost friends and neighbors? Where are the tears over those who think that their life is going to be fulfilled and found in their own definition of humanity and sexuality and relationship? We're quick to say something about them, but how often do I cry over them? Jeremiah said, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Lord, am I weeping over the brokenness in my sister churches around here? Lord, do I weep when I see another servant, another pastor fall in sin? Do I weep when that church down the road goes through a split? And what about the culture around me? Paul said in Philippians 3.18, For many of whom I have often told you are now, and now even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul says there are enemies to the cross. And we know that, right? And the Apostle Paul said, I, I tell you that with tears in my eyes over their brokenness. Over the fact that they're turning away from God's law. They don't keep His word. And there's, there's a brokenness that's a characteristic. Of those who understand our God, love Him, serve Him, and want to walk with Him through His Word, according to His Word. So, earlier I read from Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which is already yours in Christ Jesus. The mind of a servant, the heart of a servant who sees the brokenness around him as Jesus did when he looked over Jerusalem and he weeps over it. And he says, I am your answer. And we as God's people are to be broken over the brokenness around us, holding fast to the truth of God's Word, holding fast to the God of this Word, and holding forth the Gospel that is the answer. So i got to ask, have you, have you received the justice of and mercy of God in Christ. Have you trusted in Jesus? And before we just say, oh yeah, 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 I have. Well, then, then the reality of that relationship in our lives is going gonna, is gonna to exhibit itself in the fruit of that life. In the, in the brokenness over our own sin and the compassion and care for those around us. And it's a struggle. Lord, it's a fight I know for all of us. It is for me. But may God's word, as he gives it to us here in Psalm 119, be that which shows us what it means to be a servant, to trust him, walk with him, and to do so with compassion, standing for what is right, at the right time, for the right reasons, and trusting in him to lead us as we do that. Let's pray. God, I thank you today for your word. Oh, I thank you for, for the timeliness of it as we, Lord, just walk Walk through this season of our lives. Walk through this season in our culture. Father, help us, I pray, to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. To have fellowship with one another. That, Lord, as your word says in First John, that we'll confess our sins and 
Lord, walk in the, in the reality of that reconciliation and forgiveness that you offer us in Christ. Thank you that you are faithful, Lord, to forgive and cleanse us of that unrighteousness. Thank you that Jesus took your justice. And Lord, help us to live out that same grace and truth. And help us for Jesus' sake, for the glory of his name. 